welcome to Generation Ag, a podcast for the future of agriculture. I'm Kayla. And I'm Lavinia. And we're a couple of young Aggies passionate about celebrating our industry and sharing the stories of people who work in it. Another great episode this week, slightly different from sort of what we've been talking about over the last couple of months, but I got a great opportunity to chat with Jade Mills, who's the CEO of Sustainable Table. Jade has spent the last decade advocating and leading approaches to regenerative food production in the horticultural industry. She has brought together key changes and, you know, made a lot of different unique regenerative practices that she uses to find solutions to the Australian food crisis. Having fostered a close connection to Australia's natural environment since her childhood, she has worked in roles from teacher to strategist to regenerative fruit farmer, ultimately with the aim of transforming the country's food production methods. As the CEO of Sustainable Table, she's combined an understanding of food production with her strategic mind, allowing her to elevate the leaders in this space while connecting the key fundraisers to catalyst change. I think that this will be a really awesome episode for a lot. I know we have a lot of broadacre listeners, but I think that it's really important to highlight what's happening within the industry as a whole. And it's really unique to hear Jade talk about some of the practices that they're implementing and that what they really do on farm to create change and her connection to the land and the earth. And it's really amazing what Sustainable Table is as a foundation for really highlighting these regenerative farmers within Australia. So I highly recommend that you go and jump on that website, but I really think you're going to get a lot out of this episode. And for me, I really connected a lot with Jade and her story and really having that love of the land. So I really appreciated her being so honest and open and it's really exciting what she's doing. So hopefully you really enjoy this episode and we'll get into it. Jade, thank you so much for taking the time out to chat to myself on Generation Ag today. The first question we always start out with is for you to tell us a little bit about your childhood growing up and then your connection to agriculture. Sure. Well, I grew up as a perma kid in West Gippsland and that meant we pretty well knew where all our food came from and if we didn't grow it ourselves, we swapped it with others. We were pretty grassrootsy. We had a pretty solid understanding of the vagaries of farming and the precariousness of feeding yourself and the complexity of feeding ourselves. But I was really lucky. I was surrounded by a really big family who, you know, all had deeply entrenched skills in food production and food preservation. And also it meant we had a community around us that gave really willingly the idea of trading of food and excess and abundance. And so... Yeah, I had a bit of an idyllic, although very simple and as poor as a church mouse childhood. It steeped me in seasons. It steeped me in being outside and in the dirt and really in cohesion with the country that we lived on. What are some of those really fond memories you have or perhaps even those moments where you look to where you are now that you think were those telltale signs for the career and the life that you would have as an adult? I guess you don't really know as a kid, even in hindsight, whether or not they were formative enough to have led me on the path that I'm on now because I definitely strayed from where I am now for about 10 years, from sort of late 
teens, about sort of 17, 18 until I was about, well, actually, I, I can't really say 10 years because I was back in the bush by the time I was 21 and we were, you know, growing lots of our own food and then started to really push for local food system change pretty soon after that. But I think there's that ability to have a really long rope in your day-to-day meant that we were riding horses bareback with no clothes on because we were riding to the river to go swimming and, and forage for mussels and light fires on the side of the river and, and you know, feast using sticks. And, you know, with the same group of neighbours and cousins and friends, we would dart through the neighbours' paddocks and find a little spot that we'd build cubbies on the side of the road out of bark and collect cow poo until we had piles and piles and piles of it and then cover ourselves in it and throw it at the passing cars, nearly causing accidents. Like we were always, and then we would go and find a a cow trough to go swimming in to clean ourselves off before we went home for dinner. We were always half naked. We were always barefoot. We were always covered in mud and um, largely scavenging our own food from roadside trees and from, you know, various families' veggie gardens. And we, we had a, a pretty solid connection to the earth that we were were scrambling on. By the time I was 21, um, I had been to uni and done PR of all things and really felt like I needed to be doing something that had a bit more meat in it. So we'd moved back to the bush by then, my then boyfriend and I, and he's now my husband. And, you know, we were beginning to ask the questions around us as the multi-generational orchardists was pulling all of their trees out as to why they weren't viable, why they weren't keeping them for the next generation and and why there wasn't any money left in small-scale family-owned farming. And that was probably really the catalyst. So even though it wasn't my childhood, it was definitely my early adulthood and it started to really sow a pretty deep seed of curiosity as to why our food system, which is so dominated by long supply chains and leaves the farmer as the price taker as opposed to the price maker despite his input costs and, you know, despite having a squeeze from the banks, you know, it means that the people that are growing our food are really fragile. And so I I guess for the better part of my 20s and 30s, we researched what a localised, shorter supply chain, fairer food system looked like and we began the local food co-op after doing a couple of months in the States, having a look at at a local food system in the northeast region of the States and really trying to replicate what that could look like here in the northeast of Victoria. And so I guess that was really the beginning of this. And I, at that point, we also started to build pretty strong networks around the area that we're in so that we weren't just relying on our American counterparts but start to, to identify some of those key players in Australia. And I guess all of that has culminated in us, well, my husband and I now run Black Bun Farm here in northeast Victoria, and that's a small-scale, family-owned heritage orchard and berry farm. And we've got over 100 different varieties of fruit trees, predominantly apples, and about three and a half kilometres of berries. And they pick from January through till June. And we run schools groups and we have uh, workshops and um, lots of sort of skill, upskilling programs for adults that are wanting to really understand where their food comes from and how they might replicate some of this. But all of that has led me to my current role, which is as CEO of Sustainable Table, which is a national organisation that was originally built or created really as a consumer um, education entity. And at the time, that was really critical. It was really important that people could work out how to eat ethically and how to buy food locally and how to support 
farmers that were growing regeneratively. But, you know, we've evolved a bit since then. And actually what we discovered when we started to scratch that whole sphere a little bit more was that we can't fix the food system without also fixing the financial system. And so the work that we do is not only in the paddock with the farmers doing the important work that they're doing to better understand regen ag practices but and to connect them all to each other, but it's also to really bring those who've got enabling cash to the table in a way that is values aligned and allows the farmer to still have a very strong voice in that equation. Got so many questions because you've just covered so many different things. <laughs> Sorry. First, no, I love it. I think that that's great. You've given our listeners a great overview into who you are and what you're doing. I'd love to jump a little bit back to your farm that you run, which is Regen Ag that you've already stated. Can you tell me a little bit more about some of your regen practices? But also I would love to hear more about your decision to actually start sharing this. Like you've got a quite a big social presence and you do podcasts quite a lot. What was that decision and thinking behind starting to actually share your story? Uh, it, it was a really conscious decision. We decided to share it from the unsexy ground up because what we didn't want to do was suddenly appear to the world five years or 10 years down the track after that heart-wrenching, hard-working startup phase was behind us and it all looked glossy and shiny and beautiful and people had this expectation that that's what it should look like when you start out because it just isn't. It's bloody hard work and especially in orcharding, you know, it's slow. We've got a 10-year startup phase. We're only up to year seven now. And even though in year one we were able to, you know, open for workshops and um, start taking schools groups, it was rough. Like nothing looked beautiful. Nothing looked beautiful. And trees only grow as fast as the seasons go past. And, you know, we inherited land that had been pretty heavily flogged. And so we did years and years of back-to-back manure cropping and, we had quite a heavy load of broom and blackberry that we had to get rid of and we had to do that the hard way by using maddocks and fire and it had a bloody great big motorbike track all around it and we had to bring the bulldozers in to flatten that and those areas are still pretty damaged and they're still requiring more work than others and we do double doses of clover seed whenever we um, harrow seed into the ground. So, We intentionally share it because we want it to be real and we intentionally share it because we know we've got skills that that have been hard-earned and we want to share those with others who don't have to break their neck doing it. They can can leapfrog on our knowledge and hopefully get a a foot ahead faster. We're also first-gen farmers, so everything that we're doing is from scratch. You know, we haven't inherited any component of the land that we're on and so we're working off-farm at the same time as on-farm and we're both at times doing full-time farming jobs and full-time off-farm jobs to make it it work. And that's bloody exhausting. So we very intentionally want to tell that story so that, you know, people can realise that it's slow and that there's magic in slow. You learn a lot in slow. Some of the regen practices that we're looking at, I've already talked about the fact that we, we manure cropped for years. Diversity is a really key part of everything that we do and that really leans back in on sort of mimicking what the natural world is doing. And apples came from areas in Europe where they were edge-dwelling forest trees, which means they were really used to having highly aisled uh, multi-year leaf litter at their feet. And so we have intentionally planted them 
at full scale. So they're not dwarfed apples and or they're a little bit dwarfed, but they're not planted as espaliers or in tight compaction like some of the commodity growers do. You know, it's pretty standard now for trees to be 75 centimetres apart, as of four metres apart. We have uh, central leaded them because ultimately that will mean that as a small-scale family-owned farm, we can uh, manage the training of them and the ongoing maintenance of them, especially as we get older because their form will be in place and we won't require multiple times yearly to be training them. We add hefty amounts of green manure um, and mulch. So mulch is sort of our secret weapon to all things. So we have a massive mulch pile at the bottom of our property that has mostly deciduous tree in it and we add lots of things. So anytime we see roadkill on the side of the road, we throw that in it to activate it. We add anything that's off this property, we finally mulch it and and throw it in. Any animals that, that die on the property go in there as well. And so it's really nutrient dense and it's forever being, you know, turned and moved around and we would go through tons and tons and tons of that every year. And so diversity in rootstocks, so all of our trees sit on a variety of rootstocks so that there isn't just great swathes of the same rootstock and that gives us disease resistance and and variation. Diversity of varieties, so as I said, we've got over 100 varieties of apple on the orchard but they don't all sit next to each other necessarily. They're interplanted with things like pears and nashies and plums and peaches and, and berries and mountain pepper and uh, quinces. And so there isn't a monoculture anywhere on our orchard. It makes it more difficult to manage for sure, but it, and especially given that it's a pick your own, it makes it, you know, difficult to explain to people where things are sometimes. But that means that we, we are building resilience and we're starting to mimic what would look a little bit more like a food forest. We've also gone slowly, very slowly, and we're trialing things all the time. And it's at such a scale that two of us can walk it daily and observe really deeply and slowly and understand or or try to understand why things are or aren't working and then mimic it or solve it in other areas of the orchard. And so it's at such a scale that a family can operate it in a way that's pretty intimate. So that's pretty key as well. In order to be regenerative, I think it's really important that you are including your broader community in it. And so we do that through our schools programs and that ebbs and flows a bit and it's taken a bit of a hit during COVID, but that's beautiful. We get all the kids to take their shoes off and they run around bare feet and they come back and tell us what they've observed and we do, you know, sit spots with kids where they sit in one spot and they, you know, might do a meditation in the sun and lots of eating, They loads and loads of food, but just, you know, questioning kids on where their food comes from and getting them to understand the difference between a short supply chain and a long supply chain and you know, understand gravity's role in getting water to trees and, you know, understanding the importance of bugs in the trees. All those really simple things. Our orchard looks like a mess because we have interrow, all our interrows are left with a biodiversity strip right down the guts of every row. Our rows aren't straight. They all follow contour. And so it looks quite different to a normal mainstream orchard or a picture book orchard. And things that other farmers consider weeds like St. John's wort or radish or or even fog grass, you know, all of those things could be considered by some orchardists as weeds to us just represent a really rich fabric of biodiversity that is critical to creating a really healthy ecosystem that's not devoid of life. So whenever we have a problem, we don't take life by spraying, we add life 
and then let that process balance itself out. That's such a holistic way of doing things. I really appreciate how in-depth you were about explaining the different issues you have, but also the way that you go about fixing them and then your overall thought process of why you're doing things the way you're doing. I think it's so unique. And yeah, thinking about a mulching system that you're putting, you know, all these different lives or loss of life back into the soil. Yeah, it's such an amazing way to think about it. And you're just using what's already naturally being produced by the earth. And that's a really, really special thing. I would love for your perspective, because you mentioned a little bit, especially regarding Sustainable Table, about the Australian food crisis. And I think we've definitely seen a lot of changes to this during COVID where people have started to see how valuable Australian food is. But yeah, I'd love for your perspective to touch on this. That'd be great. Yeah, I think there's nothing like a... um a natural world disaster to make people realise the things that matter. And food systems are most definitely one of those. We have a three-day just-in-time approach in Australia, which means there's only ever three days worth of food on a supermarket shelf. So if for some reason the food can't get through because of fire or flood or road damage or whatever it might be, that shelf won't refill itself in three days' time and that leaves that community stranded without food. And so we saw that roll out in, in covid you know, there was a little bit of me that was a bit excited about the fact that it, it it was abundantly clear to people that they needed to take where their food came from seriously and they needed to start to build food sovereignty knowledge and, you know, consider planting it themselves. You couldn't get seeds and you couldn't get seedlings for a while there during COVID. And it felt like we were galvanising. We were coming together, whether you were in the city or the country or, you know, whether you were male or female or old or young, we were all in it together and we were all saying loudly we need to value things like our food system and the farmers who grow this stuff that goes on our plates and feeds our bellies. The local food system, like all of the food networks and uh, local food hubs and food CSA boxes, they all had between 200 and 400% increases in demand and it was incredible. So the shuffle was a bit crazy because, you know, everybody was operating under pretty clip circumstances, but all of them, bar none, rose to the challenge and were able to supply the amount of food that was was being demanded of them during those times. And then really heartbreakingly, what we've seen is that as normality has resumed, for want of a better word, um, whatever normal is, people have gone back to the convenient op options and the cost effective options and it's coincided with the cost of living increasing and so I understand wholeheartedly why people are are opting for less expensive options but the impact of that is enormous and where it's left our local food system is in a complete state of disarray because they've had to gear up to meet this increased demand in a very short amount of time and then it's fallen off a cliff and so it's left And not all, like I'm not speaking on behalf of every single local or short supply chain operator. There are certainly some heroes out there that are still thriving. But as a whole, you know, the ecosystem is hemorrhaging. It's it's hurting because the cost of logistics has gone up. The cost of inputs has gone up. The cost of employment has has gone up or the inability to get staff um, is heightened. So all of these factors are culminating all at the same time and meaning that some of our absolute system heroes who've been on the ground and leading the way for more than a decade are 
now making the really tough decisions to to shut doors or recalibrate altogether and it leaves a gaping hole. So not only does it leave us feeling a bit desperate because all of those beacons of light and hope are going out, but it also leaves us with an inability to access food easily from our local catchments or our local um, our food provisional areas. Does that answer your question? Perfectly. Yeah, that was really, really a great overview. And I think that that, yeah, there's a lot of things going on in the world. And I know you mentioned inflation and all of that sort of thing, but I think that sort of perfectly brings us to my next question surrounding sustainable table and really overall what the organization is focusing on right now and what you guys are trying to do over the next couple of months slash year. Yeah, it's been a massive two years as we get all our foundation pieces in place. We undertook a discovery phase a couple of years ago. With it. We had a million dollars um, of philanthropic money in our bank account, which was a collaborative fund that is generated on behalf of industry to fund an innovative projects or transformative projects. And we undertook a discovery phase and found about 200 projects that came out of the woodwork and presented themselves to us and all of them were absolutely incredible but f- about 50 or so of them were so entirely transformative that if we could fund them and and enable them we felt confident that we would then put us in a position where we could either scale those businesses or if it wasn't appropriate to scale them to replicate them and so we've slowly chipped away at working with values aligned funders to put money into some of these projects all around the country that start to really catalyze and establish uh, localized, transformative localized food systems. And so that is continuing, but over the next few months, there's quite a few initiatives that we're rolling out. One of them um, is to create the first ever national regenerative food and fiber farming map or food system map. And so we anticipate that that will be live by the end of March. I'm not sure when you're going live with this, but by the end of March, there will be an online portal that allows people just to to fill their details in. Every application needs to be assessed because we want to make sure that there's no greenwashing and that everybody that participates is well and truly embedded in the intention to be regenerative or is already regenerative. And it's not just the farmers, it's also the connectors, it's also the uh, advocates, you know, it's also the value adders, it's all of the players that form the ecosystem of a, a healthy regen food system. And then the other thing that we're doing is sort of the combination of uh, the last year's worth of work as well, and that's the regenerative investment roadmap for food and fibre. What we realised, and I said this just a minute ago, was that we can't fix a broken food system without also fixing a broken financial system. And the financial system at the moment sits squarely dominated by the ethics around capitalism and that is ultimately extractive. And it doesn't work when you are trying to build a food system that isn't extractive but is is regenerative. And so we needed to build the equivalent in the financial system that wasn't just relying on um, philanthropic dollars that also looks at all the variations of investment. And so we're working over the next um, six months with 
funders that we already have relationships with, funders who are a bit curious about what we're doing but we've had nothing to do with them yet and funders who we know have capacity to support this stuff but we haven't had any connection with them at all to have really hard and probably uncomfortable conversations about how they're moving away from the business as usual paradigm and into not just the innovative sphere but also transformative. And we've got a whole series of projects. We've got an amazing team and one of the team members has pulled together about 60 projects from all across the country and all across different sectors to showcase what some of these projects could be if they were funded, if they were enabled. You know, I guess we're working in an environment where people usually have an expectation of impact outcomes, but the reality is that, you know, impact outcomes replace relationship. And so where there's a lack of relationship, we want a number, but we don't actually want to take that approach. The approach that we want to take instead aligns with our principles that speak very strongly to the complexity of the world that we live in and um, you know, it takes us away from that one-dimensional thinking and allows us to lean into things like beauty and multiplier effects and, you know, really build relationships with the project so that we're all in partnership together. And, you know, I guess that's more intuitive, which feels very abstract and not the sort of language that usually plays out in that investment sphere. But it's really important that we start to be brave enough to have these conversations that that make people think a bit differently. For you, you're obviously very busy. You know, you're managing your farm. You're also running Sustainable Table. What's the motivating factor that keeps you going every day that really excites you to juggle it all? I think the next seven generations in front of me I think I lean on the knowledge that was shared by my predecessors and my ancestral knowledge to live the way I do and I want to make sure that the next seven generations in front of me have got the ability to do that too, not only because the earth that they inherit is healthy enough to do that in but because their knowledge and their desire for a deeply connected, rich culture exists. I think... There's hope in the conversations that you have with people that are thinking along the same lines and there is definitely a groundswell at the moment and so that makes me feel like it's definitely not just me and the few around me that are doing this work but that it's coming through all different avenues and, you know, it's starting to be really clear that change is in the air and that it's no longer the uphill push that it's been for so, so long. I mean, there's still plenty of change that needs to happen from top-down initiatives, but the groundswell from the bottom up is strong and that gives me hope and really is probably the impetus to keep going. I think I'm ultimately a um, pretty positive person and if I see just a tiny little glimmer of potential, then I pounce on it. That doesn't always mean that I can do that in a way that is nurturing of my own health or my own you know, time management abilities because sometimes I'm bloody exhausted, but for the most part, they're the little kernels that keep you going. I think that that's so special and definitely evident from how you've shared some of your story today. Just touching back on regenerative agriculture, because it's still obviously, I think you're right, there is definitely more movement around it. I think there's a lot more people doing things, but it often still, it can be taboo in certain 
industries within agriculture, for those people that you know are alongside you and advocating with you, what is your advice to keep going in implementing these practices or, you know, where are places where people can begin to just even dip their toe into some of these changes that you've implemented for a long time? I think, I mean, even where it's not that taboo, you're still a bit outlandish. Most of the local farmers around here drive past us with their arms crossed, kind of glaring over their steering wheel at what they consider to be the weeds in our paddock. I would say find your people. They might not be in your geography, in your region, but, you know, online it's liberating. It gives you the ability to access people in in all different parts of the globe doing similar things to you. And even if it's not that you're growing apples or that they're growing apples or pigs or whatever, chickens or market gardening, doesn't matter what you're doing, there is something to be learned from a mindset. So if there's a similar or a values-aligned mindset in a different sector, then have the conversation and... That can be really hard sometimes because it takes a bit of bravery to ask questions that feel stupid, but there aren't any of those. Just keep asking. We offer a wolfing program here at Blackburn Farm. So we have a really active spring and autumn wolfing program and they are magnificent. They are now friendships that we will never not have. They're deep, complex, shared uh, experiential relationships that I would uh, encourage anybody to consider. So if you've got even three weeks up your sleeve, from whatever it is that your other life allows you to take to take some time out of, do it. Find someone to go and wolf with and go and learn because you won't just be learning practical skills. You'll be building deep bonds and relationships with people that can become mentors and part of your own ecosystem. That's phenomenal. I love that impact you guys are having. As I sort of mentioned to you before we started recording, most of our audience are between sort of the 18 to 35. What is your best piece of advice for somebody young who is looking at, you know, doing things differently in the industry but isn't really sure? I know you've already mentioned regarding finding your people, which are absolutely, but is there any other pieces of wisdom, especially in those sort of under 25 starting really figuring life out still? I'd love your perspective on that. Mm. Yeah, I think wolfing is a great place to start with that. But I hate this piece of advice, but I wish someone had have given it to me and then held me to account on it. And it's to be patient. It's hard to be patient when the fire in your belly is burning deep and strong and you just want to get your hands dirty. But there's so much frustration associated with even getting onto land in the first place and learning the skills and finding the people to teach you and you know, working out what your path will be in this, I would say be patient and kind to yourself. We we pushed really hard. I got really sick. You know, you can't you can't go as fast as you think the world needs you to go if you're not well. And so it's important that you do one thing at a time and do it well, see how it fits in with the rest of the rhythm of your existence and then build on that. We stacked. We had a nursery going. We had UPIC Orchard. We had um, education programs. We had the podcast. We had the book. And, you know, that can sound like there's a, a lot of moving parts that are worthwhile, but all of those things in their own right could have stood on their own as well. And I don't think you need to stack in order to be achieving what you ultimately want to want to achieve. There's time and I know the world feels like it's kind of hurtling to a place of change quickly and that we need to act. But if lots of us are just doing one thing well all of the time, 
then it makes a massive difference. I absolutely love all of that advice. I hope everybody listening really takes that in and even rewinds and listens to that back because I think those key points you just mentioned were so beautiful but also so intentional with how, you know, everyone doing their bit can make the biggest difference. So I, I really love that. Jade, I really appreciate having a chat with you today. But before we go, the last thing, where is the place where people can find you? Where should they head if they want to learn more? What websites, socials? Give yourself a plug for us. Hi, Di. So if you are doing something regenerative already and you want to be included on the national map, you need to jump on sustainabletable.org.au and just find the map. Um, it doesn't take very long to download. We just take a week or so to assess your application and then that will be live and you'll be included really visibly with the rest of um, the network. If you're wanting to come and visit at Black Barn Farm, we're at blackbarnfarm.com.au. If you're wanting to listen to the podcast, it's at futuresteading.com.au. And the other thing with Sustainable Table is that there's a whole series of guides there too. There's the Ethical Eating Guide and also soon to be the Regenerative or Regen 101 guide. And they're, they're collated content. So they're really amazing content covering a very, very broad range of things that allow you just to slowly and safely go through and watch podcasts or listen to podcasts and watch documentaries and, and read different publications that have been pulled together. So that's an incredible resource that anybody can access. Jade, thank you so much for your time today. It's been so insightful and I think a lot of our listeners will get a lot out of it and your knowledge and expertise on Regen has been really formative. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Best of luck. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Generation Ag. We hope you loved it. If you did, don't forget to visit our guest bios page on our website where you can get all of their contact information. And if you have an idea for another guest in the future or a story that you want to hear, you can get in touch with us via our email, which is hello at generationag.com.au. Don't forget to follow us on our socials at generation.ag. That's Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And if you've loved this episode as well, you can share it with your friends on your socials and make sure to subscribe to us on the podcast app and leave us a review because that all really helps as well. Thanks, guys. Bye.